0: We're going Under the Hood with Dr. Sunshine, where we explore topics that are relevant to STEM professionals with intersecting identities. Thank you for listening. Welcome everyone. Welcome back to Under the Hood. This is an online community for aspiring current or retired STEM students and professionals. It's also a space for the friends and family of STEM people where you can hear firsthand accounts of the behind the scenes experiences of those you care about who have dedicated their working lives to careers in STEM. So we're back again today with another chat with my dear friend and colleague, Professor Haofei Yu. Hi, Haofei.
1: Hi.
0: Right, so I'm very excited to talk with uh, Professor Yu about his educational journey and some questions that are specific to the international community. But let's introduce Professor Yu. So he's an assistant professor of civil, environmental and construction engineering at the University of Central Florida in Orlando, Florida. He earned a bachelor of science degree in environmental engineering, from Hangzhou Dianji University in math, and a master of science degree in environmental engineering from the University of Shanghai for science and technology and finally a PhD in environmental health from the University of South Florida After conducting postdoctoral research at Pacific Northwest National Lab and the Georgia Institute of Technology, Professor Yu launched his faculty career, where he is now the principal investigator of the Air Quality Research Lab at UCF. His research interests are pollutant emission estimation, air quality modeling, air pollution measurements, and exposure and health impact estimation. Yeah, so very impressive.
1: Thanks. And
0: yeah, and I'm looking forward to uh, talking more about your journey. I'm so happy we'll... to share. <laughs> yeah, thank you for being here. So we'll jump right in. So, Hefei, can you tell us a little bit about your motivations for studying environmental health in the U.S.?
1: Um, sure. So it's... um. My background is in environmental engineering. So when I was uh, starting my undergrad uh, back in China, like uh, 20 something years ago. So it always saying that, you know, I can't believe it's over 20 years. (laughs) So uh, there is a saying basically saying the 21st century is going to be a a environmental engineering is going to play a major role. Um, So that's why I I went to environmental engineering major. And uh, for environmental health, it's obviously it's, it's a somewhat a happy constant. Uh, so when I was looking for a, a PhD position in the United States, I came across my advisor, Dr. Amy Stort at USF, um, South Florida. Um, so she was a uh, joint appointment in both engineering and public health. So she asked me if I'm interested in environmental health. Uh, I, I look over the, cause my original target environmental engineering uh, I look over the, her uh, research uh, research spectrum and find it quite quite interesting. And plus, the ultimate goal of engineering environmental engineering is to serve house. health. Um, so, you know, so I decided to join her in college public health. That's how I ended up there. So but it has been turned out pretty good so far.
0: Well, that's interesting. So you were <laughs> in the engineering family by way yeah. of your advisor. Um, and I agree, that's a great nexus to study across. Yeah, yeah
1: it's, it's a very different perspective, but yeah.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. So my next question is, were there any benefits to having educational perspectives from both China and the US? And if so, did that enhance your graduate and postdoctoral research?
1: Um, I would say definitely, yes. Um, so, how the graduate school operates is is there you there are some similarities and there are some differences between U.S. and China, of course. Um, so, my personal experience is, is that um, uh, as an undergrad student in China, I did some research, um, you know, at, at two different universities actually. Uh, so, my my personal experience is in the United States, all the graduate students are encouraged to be more um, active. To actually to own the project, to take the project as their own, to push by themselves, um, so you have a more active role in the project, and I, I found that's quite quite interesting because you, when you, when you went over the, the basically the worker uh, relationship versus you 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 took on the project as your own, it's um, it's definitely opened your eyes. So I would say it makes me more appreciate that because it defeats different people, but I do personally more appreciate the system here.
0: Okay, so um, as an impromptu question, do you feel like you were prepared for that take on the project work ethic here as a student?
1: <laughs> Honestly, not really.
0: <laughs> because I mean, um,
1: I think it's happened to most students now. I mean, from all the students I interacted, um, you know, so for, for all the students uh, at that time, they were kids. Right. So just freshly graduate from an undergrad, the whole life is about learning, reading books, learning about different concepts, memorizing different equations, things like this. But suddenly you have to take over a project. It's a big transition, uh, but it's definitely a good transition. It takes some time, but uh, um, I would say it's going to be difficult for some for a student to be fully prepared uh, to do that, but it, it's, it's good.
0: Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. It (laughs) is a big responsibility to transition from receiving information, memorization, and then taking on responsibility for your own project.
1: It it is a a a
0: tremendously
1: big uh, transition.
0: Okay, well, thank you for that. And so now I'm going to ask about your research. Mm -hmm. And I find it to be really interesting. as background professor you, Halfa and I have a long-standing collaborative relationship in the area of how mobility impacts air pollution exposure. I was inspired by your your work. And with that, I'd like to ask, um, in with respect to individual mobility for air pollution exposure, how can cellular technology potentially transform exposure health studies?
1: Right, I'm happy to talk about it, actually, it's, it's quite a fascinating topic. Um, so as you know, one of the major issues in air pollution exposure is basically human moves all the time. Um, you know, we know air pollution causes health impacts, uh, but we, we want to know, you know, there are millions of different diseases. We, the, one of the major question is, does explored air pollution cause this disease? Because sometimes the disease association is there, but rather it's not as drastic as apparent. It's like it touches you die. No, not that drastic. But we still want to know, does it impact? For example, I'm interested in uh, one of the health, health outcomes I'm already interested in is basically pregnancy outcomes. Does in- exposure to air pollution increase some sort of like burst defect, the burst, you know, so- burst illness, something like that. Um, but it, it, it's a difficult topic uh, because human moves all the time. When you know air pollution concentration changes all the time. You know, you constantly hear people like stay in the suburbs where air pollution concentration is relatively low, but they work in downtown where air pollution concentration is high. Um, so you have to take account the different differences in the pollution concentration, different locations, how they move at different locations. It's difficult because you know you need to have data. And uh, that data is is pretty difficult to collect. Uh, the cellular technology is very interesting. It fits well here simply because you know you have everybody has phones, uh, whether it's a smartphone, whether it's a black and white, um, you know, just regular Nokia one one zero phone. So it, it's everybody has one of these. And uh, if you have one of these, there are some digital trips, digital footprint that is available and can be used to basically to go back to see where they are with proper, of course, protection of privacy, of course. So, you know, some of the, you know, as in our research, we found that some of the uh, data can go back to many, many months. Now, if you think about it, so for some of the, in the case of pregnancy outcomes, some of the, um, you know, when the pollution takes impact on the fetus, it happens in very early in the, in, the, uh, in the pregnancy, sometime in the first trimester, right? If we want to go back to the first trimester, that's we're talking about half a year ago. It's hard because, you know, I don't even remember where I was yet, last, yeah, yesterday, right? If we talk about half a year, ago, it's, it, it's really difficult to, to get the data. Uh, but, you know, using the cell, cellular technology, we may be able to take, um, you know, a peek where this person was and how they how to move around from a long time ago with those of data and combined with uh, pollution simulations something like that with some ready to use uh, information we can get a good picture of, of this person's exposure pollution how much pollution this person inhaled you know, then we can have a better idea for example we, there are many questions can be answered one question is does exposure to this pollutant give you this outcome? If it does, how strong the impact will be? Uh, or you know, we, should, should we care or not? If we see a strong impact, maybe something needs to be done. For example, if, let's say, if there's no uh, concrete evidence, if we see, for example, exposure to some sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, a teeny, teeny, teeny particles can give you a big chance, big jump of, um, you know, uh, giving birth to a teeny baby with a very low birth weight. Uh, with the severe birth defects, maybe you should better protect the mothers, because you know we know this association exists, and we want to have a healthy baby. We want to protect the mother, so it has significant policy implications. Um, so, not only that. Capturing how people move around has significant impacts not only in the hairbru field, but in many other fields, transportation planning, uh, a bunch of different health fields. it's it's a very, very useful data set.
0: Well, thank you very much for explaining to us the importance of tracking how people move in and out of indoor and outdoor spaces. Um, as we transition to new fuel economies, we'll want to be able to track this information as well. And if you don't mind, I'm going to link a few of your papers sure. in the description box for people to read at their leisure. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. yeah. And with that being said, you're obviously conducting interesting and great research, and you have people there to help you in the form of your postdocs and students. So can you tell us about how or what your best practices are for managing a research group that may be full of people from different parts of the world? Sure. Um, so I first, I have
1: to admit that my group isn't a big group, so my experience is limited, I have to say, uh, compared to some of the major players who have dozen people in their group. So I can only speak from my experience. Um, so my... I have uh, interacted with uh, like several dozen different students uh, including you know all the way from high school to postdocs so it's it's they, they come from uh, different backgrounds uh, many come from different majors actually I have, I have a student from electrical engineering computer science public admin uh, from all kinds of different majors so my, my experience is that uh, uh, the biggest lesson I learned is basically uh, big be flexible be a, the, the reason I'm saying this is, is because um, sometimes I just assume people know stuff, but because they come from a different background, they don't. It, it makes perfect sense but actually at that time I'm not I, I don't know too much about it. So so and sometimes it's still not shy. Um, i just give you one example. I have this wonderful wonderful. Um, an undergrad the, the student, uh, uh, from, I recruited from one of my class. She's one of the best, one of the brightest. Um, so so I actually assigned her an important task, which is to run the, the motor vehicle emission simulator model. You know that model. It's, um, I was an assumption because she gonna pick up her things very quickly. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turns out she's having a lot of difficulties, but she's too shy to talk to me. Uh, even too shy to even to talk to some of the students. Um, so, although I think she did a wonderful, wonderful job, but I can tell she feel like she, she didn't perform well. Uh, that's, I, I, I keeps, that makes me feel really bad. So, I guess that what I'm trying to say is, is that, uh, you know, students come from different backgrounds and uh, uh, their knowledge is Sometimes it can be surprising because it, you know, it is it's just very different level of knowledge on that, on different topics. So that's my biggest experience. So another experience is quite interesting, very interesting is that uh, uh, I found you know even say people from different culture they have different, uh, um, I would say, uh, you know, schedules. So for example, I have someone colleague who needs to. Um, leave every Friday at a certain time to pray. I don't know that, so I was like, "Why? Why? What's going on?" And he's like, "Oh, that's because of my religious, you know, schedule." So that opened my eyes. So that's kind of very another very inter- inter- interesting experience. But I do personally respect that.
0: Well, that's awesome. Well, <laughs> thank you for bringing up those stories. And I think what. Um I learned from that and possibly what other listeners can learn is that we as faculty and as advisors we're um adapting on the fly to the needs yeah. of our advisees. Yeah.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah. So thank you. Um and in the same spirit of adaptation, what do you hope to achieve in the next 10 years in your research program? or even as an academic administrator. And so this is not to (laughs) scoop any of your big ideas, but can you give us an idea of where you see your lab in the next 10 years?
1: Uh, Sure, so so research wise, in my research program wise, what I'm hoping to achieve is next 10 years is is basically um, a bunch of different, I have a bunch of different things that I wanted to do. Um, So, but I was particularly inspired and actually by um, uh, Dr. Ron Cohen's work at Berkeley uh, about the, the Beacon Network. So that's what so I strive to be, to be honest. <laughs> well, um, so what I want to do is because, you, you know, I work on air, air quality management. Uh, so what I really want to do is basically, I want to, uh, to, to further design uh, some advanced algorithms based on the sensor networks we're operating here at Orlando. Uh, I hope to be able to provide near real time information information um, and that's a tremendously difficult task, as you were. So, um, But uh, yeah, that's, that's what's true to me research-wise. Um, so, and for that goal to happen, you know, there's a lot of work. The first is basically better sensor networks. The other one, that <laughs> is a big challenge. The other one is advanced algorithm. I was thinking about some statistical and machine learning algorithm, whatever, but, but to, to achieve that goal. Um, I, I don't have a concrete idea yet. As you can tell, <laughs> I'm working toward that. Um, for administrator, so my, I would say my goal would be um, I'm currently doing some editing, uh, editor works for some journals, a few journals. Um, my goal is basically, um, it, it's quite simple to to be more responsive. Uh, and and uh, the reason I'm saying this is, is because sometimes we all submit journals, articles to different, uh, submit papers to different journals and uh, uh, find reviewers get them published. That's an extremely important task. Uh, because of my time limitations, sometimes it takes me a long time to handle the publications. And uh, that's, you know, some, some authors not, not too happy with it, which I absolutely don't understand. I just hope I can uh, have more time on, in that. I can spend more time to basically to give everybody a speedy um, cycle. So do not keep them waiting.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for your honesty and vulnerability there. Um, it has become extremely difficult to turn around reviews, especially... Yeah from the early career point of view um our time has been stretched and we've been a little bit under stress due to the covid-19 pandemic and um i just want to encourage everyone listening that we'll get we'll get through this <laughs> <laughs> and our turnaround times on papers will improve <laughs> hopefully yeah well excellent thank you for telling us about your background and you know uh, another reason why i Uh, invited you here is to better understand from your perspective about how to navigate being an international student in the U.S. and perhaps considering getting permanent residency. So in this part of the conversation, I'll start off by asking you to please describe the process of obtaining a visa to study and then perhaps remain in the U.S. after those studies. Thank you.
1: Sure. Um, so, uh, from my personally, personally, I, I got my green card actually through this uh, program called the uh, National Interest Waiver. It's, uh, you know, if you can look it up, it's a uh, NIW National Interest Waiver. So, green card, there are several different categories. So I, I'm i not a, you know, immigration lawyer myself. So uh, I can only very, very, or like from a very high level, give a brief summary of it. Of it. So for most students, for most students in academia and the research in academia, uh, most of the people that they, they, when they go through is called EB1 or EB2. So in EB1, you have different categories, EB1A, EB1B, EB2, you have EB2IW, which is what I went through. And, uh, you know, um because everybody's situation is is different um so i would say if if one student one researcher wanted to get the green card it's extremely important to from very early uh, understand what are these programs what's the differences which one fits them better Um, so and planning very very early so uh it could take a long time and the the situation changes uh, very fast for example um, I submitted my application, initial application, in twenty fourteen, and I, I got my uh, green card actually last year. So it's it's a long, long, long process, uh, but that's just how it is.
0: Well, very good. So understanding the different programs, yes, um, and so the visa issue, or sorry, the visa process for entering the U.S. to study. That's pretty transparent as well,
1: or uh, yes, not? yes. <laughs> well, it is. It is quite transparent. Um. So, so sorry, I should say that visa entering the United States is quite different. Um. So you know, the most students entering uh, U.S. in F one like, visa category. So I know there's a lot of jargon, but it's just that or, I don't think there is a full term for that. But it's just F one visa that Some researchers enter U.S. through J one, which is exchange scholars. Uh, and very few use H-1B, which is a temporary worker worker visa. Um, so th- it's, it's rather complicated because different programs have different requirements. Um, you know, uh, when, for example, J-1, if you want to pursue, uh, when you enter US in J-1, if you want to pursue a green card, then there is uh, uh, some other additional requirement. H-1B, there's no such requirement, but you have additional requirement. It, it, it's rather complicated issue. So that's that's why um, that's why I, I just think my, my advice would be if someone wants interest in uh, pursuing a green card it's extremely important to know about the differences to the minute details. actually. There are plenty of articles online. Uh, just do a quick search. You'll find a lot of articles discussing the, those tremendous amount of information over there.
0: Well, thank you very much. Thank you for... Um those tips and if I could gather something really important it's to start early these processes take a long time yeah yeah and so the next question that I have is what if any were the unexpected challenges that you faced along your permanent residency journey your career journey um here in the U.S.?
1: Um. So the biggest challenge would be uh with my family. Um. You know, one one thing I didn't realize is that, say when I submit uh, my application, you know there are two steps. The first step is your application. The second step is a uh, final adjustment to uh, of the status. So when you submit the second step, uh, application document for the second step, you're not allowed to leave U.S. because if you leave, it's considered withdrawal automatically withdrawal. So I have to stay here. Uh, but the thing with that is, is that if you stay here and that process could take a long time. Um, so for me, taking me about three to four years. <laughs> and during that time, I, I'm not allowed to leave, which is very, very interesting. Um, so uh, another thing would be is, is that it, it's unexpected fluctuations in waiting time. So, you know, for the 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 processing time from the immigration services uh, depends on which category you are. It varies, and the status change every single month. And sometimes you they could uh, get your processed within. If someone is lucky, you can get your document processed in, in one month. It happens. If you're not lucky, you could you could have to wait about eight years. Sometimes like it it happens, to before your document your application can be processed. So that was somewhat unexpected somewhat unexpected I, I know that it fluctuates but i don't know it can go up just so much especially with the political climate changes the processing time just changes all the time go up and down go up and down all the time um so that's another reason you know my, my tip is just plan early because you never know what's going to happen
0: thank you thank you for that reminder to yeah, no problem just start early and that the process fluctuates And so lastly, in this conversation about making that transition um, to study in the U.S. and perhaps obtain permanent residency, if you could go back and give yourself some advice as a new graduate student at USF, um, what would that be um, in terms of making your transition a bit smoother?
1: So, um, So... Uh, if i were to give a, a suggestions i would say uh, I, would, uh, I would do mostly two suggestions the first suggestion is publish more <laughs> so, mm-hmm. it, it, it is true because when, when I, as a graduate student i like doing work i like i really like crunching the data running the models doing analysis it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun but writing is <laughs> it's, it's boring so i don't like writing at all and it's a big mistake, <laughs> I have to say that it's a big mistake. So there are people always saying, if you don't write it down, if you don't publish, it does not exist. And that's very true. So that's probably the biggest uh, uh, suggestion I would give to to a young and uh, naive me at South Florida. You have to write. I mean, even until nowadays, I still have like two or three papers. I didn't even put it in the writing. Uh, I did a lot of work, lots of last work, but You know, it's just such a shame that I didn't put it into a journal paper. So that's probably the biggest one. And it helps too. It helps with the uh, green card applications. So the second question is, the second suggestion I would say basically is, well, plan early. So I repeat myself again. Okay, so what
0: was your second one?
1: The second one is basically plan early.
0: (laughs) For everything.
1: Yeah, so, because, yeah. uh, you know, things could change change quickly.
0: Okay. Plan early, publish often. Yes. <laughs> you heard it from Professor Yu. So, thank you very much for telling us about your best practices and your experiences in regard to your career and navigating permanent residency. And so, you guys know what time it is. It is time to go under the hood and talk about some of the sticky things that often go undiscussed when it comes to being an academic, especially in STEM. And uh, we thank you for coming on and talking about these issues. And so with that, my first question is in regard to your experience at Pacific Northwest National Lab. So what types of challenges, if any, did you face as an international researcher in a federal national lab?
1: Um, so that actually, um, to be frankly, I didn't face substantial challenges at national lab. There are a few challenges. Um, uh, first challenge is national labs are quite different from universities. University open, um, so you you have a lot of freedom, but not at national labs. It makes sense because, for example, at the PL, I was at the engineering, the environmental building. Right next to to the environmental building is national security building. And you're doing nuclear stuff in there, so uh, you know, not, clearly I'm not allowed to go in there. Um, so I, I didn't notice this until a few months later. To be honest, it's a little bit embarrassing. Uh, but you know, you have different security clearances, and they take security, both cybersecurity and physical security, extremely seriously. Uh, for example, one of my colleagues just downloaded one of the dictionary software um, on work computer. And the uh, actual counterintelligence department dropped by and pick up the PC in a few minutes. That's how they take that seriously. Um, so that uh, that's quite eye-opening experience, I would say. But overall, they didn't give a lot of. Ch- I would say working there didn't is not a lot of ch- uh, didn't face a lot of a tremendous challenges. Um, they accommodate researchers researchers very well, actually um so it's it's quite quite a good experience over there
0: that's great that's good to know thank you very much
1: you're no welcome
0: okay and so the next thing i'm going to talk about or ask you about um are your experiences during the peak of quarantine in regard to covid-19 mm-hmm. and so we obviously saw a a terrible upswing in hate crimes against people of Eastern Asian descent. So how did you manage during those times in regard to your mental health and safety, um, especially in regard to your family here in the U.S.?
1: Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. It's it's an important topic. Um, so COVID is is. Uh, it's just something that we never we've never been through before and it's quite challenging. Uh, we've experienced, and both me and my colleague, my family and colleague experienced this. Um, so my colleague, when he was just you know, on UCF campus, some student even threw soda at, at them. Um, and uh, for example, my family, when we go to hiking in a local trail and we have people passing by and start cursing at us, it, it happens. Um, So, um, and and, uh, sadly many people, they they don't experience it, they don't think it exists, but it does, it does uh, exist. So you do see a surge of this um, hostile behavior towards Asian descendants. So uh, my, what we have been doing is basically stay strong and try to stay positive because this is a temporary thing. And uh, people are, are angry. And you know, they we experience a lot of different things during COVID. So they are angry and uh, sometimes they take the wrong outlet. So um, we uh, we do is basically even you know, among us, uh, we try to basically stay positive, think, think positively. Uh, we know people are good, generally people are good. Sometimes you, you cannot just be good to feel bad apples and just disregard the entire batch, right? Um, so uh, yeah so basically that's how we covered it sorry it's not a lot of information but we just try to stay stay strong stay positive
0: well uh thank you Halfei. and I am terribly sorry to hear about those experiences and we talked throughout the quarantine and you were constantly all of my friends from East Asia were constantly on my mind during that period um thanks And I will say that I vehemently denounced the crimes committed by Black people against Asian people during the COVID pandemic. I am against that, and I'm going to make that known here on this platform, even though I talk about it on Twitter as well. (laughs) Thanks, Thanks, So I applaud your courage. All right. And so thank you for touching on that sticky subject because we know that xenophobia is rampant in the US. The next thing I wanna ask you about is in relation to a recent preprint that was published or uh, disseminated by Dr. Christine Yifeng Chen about racial funding gaps at the National Science Foundation. And so um, the paper got into the statistics about relative funding rates and how the relative funding rate on average is the worst for people of Asian uh, that categorize themselves as Asian in the proposal applications. So the paper didn't really talk about why that may be happening to this group of researchers. So can you give us your thoughts on why you think there's a a pretty severe um, relative funding disproportionality when it comes to people that identify as Asian?
1: Thanks. Uh, this is just like that, uh, this is under under the hood issue. <laughs> not letting a lot of people talk about this. Uh, and, but I do think people need to talk about it. The statics is there. Um, but you know, we don't have a lot of data, like exactly what is going on. You, we don't have a lot of information to dissect this issue. Um, so I can, you know, personally I can only speak from my own experience, from the some anecdotal experiences, I would say. Um, so, Overall, I, I do have to say NSF is relatively, uh, you know, among all the other fund agents, NSF is relatively equal. Um, and it, relatively, <laughs> and of course, you see this issue, right? Um, although the exact reason, underlying reason, is not immediately clear, but uh, I, I do think. I would highly suspect if the managers are really intentionally doing this. I know the managers, they, they are trying, the program manager at NSF, they're trying to balance different topics. Um, so, you know, if this topic got too hot, the funding rate may be a little lower, if, you know, they're trying to balance different, uh, you know, part of their research portfolios from different branches. So um, just to just to take, take a guess over there, um, maybe, you know, the sort of Asian descendant who are more interested in in, in the hot topics. Maybe that's why dropped it down a little bit. Um, another reason maybe writing issue. Uh, so uh, my personal experience is that many colleagues, including me myself, we. Uh, because English is it is a our mother tongue, so our writing can have some room for improvement. Maybe that's another reason. But of course, it's both from our side. Exactly what happened from NSF side. That's you know without really a lot of data, it's pretty difficult to uh, uh, to guess. But I do hope, um, I personally do hope that uh, this situation could go away. Um, also, NSF, you know, during the review criteria, the speaker mentioned that. Writing shouldn't be judged um, during the review, judged heavily during the review. Uh, but I'm, I'm assuming some revision would uh, take that into account. Uh, again, I the experiences. Um, so it, that is just my guess, it's a complicated topic. Um, I, I hope we have more studies, like we have more uh, data from NSF and more static analysis to figure out what exactly is going on with this.
0: Well, thank you so much for weighing in on that. So you've cited perhaps um, a con- not a conflict, but a balancing of interests with funding, and just a tendency toward what <laughs> a subset of researchers may be interested in. And so you've pointed out some some challenges with writing, of course, in a second language. Um, yeah. Um, So thank you. Thank you for weighing in on that. And I'm pretty sure that the authors of the preprint will appreciate your perspective.
1: But I I do want to mention that this is just anecdotal because I really don't have data to support myself. It's just some of my uh, own experiences.
0: Absolutely. But the more we talk about it, the more we can get to the bottom of it. Yes. Okay. And with that, this has been a really interesting conversation. Uh, I thank you for your time. And I wanted to just ask a final question. Um, If you have any final words of advice for other uh, international people that are studying in the U.S., visa holders and aspiring permanent residency uh, holders who want to study and work in the U.S., do you have any additional advice or have anything to say that we haven't covered?
1: Um, I would say... The most thing we already covered already. I would say the most important thing. United States, is you know without doubt. You know you can you can without doubt you can see that it's one, the great country, right? It's it's a country of freedom, and uh, um, not a lot of people want to stay here. That makes perfect sense. And I would say my my experience would be work hard. Um, so this is a place where you know if you really work hard, you could shine because people will see that and you you will shine and your effort will be appreciated. Um, So I think that's extremely, extremely, extremely important.
0: And there you have it, y'all. You heard it first from Professor Yu. (laughs) If you work hard, you can shine here. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, so um, with that, thank you, Haofei, for joining the Under the Hood community and telling us about your experiences I am very grateful for your vulnerability and your honesty. No problem, thanks
1: for having me.
0: Yeah, thank you. And this has been, once again, episode 13 of Under the Hood and we'll catch you on the next one.